All that remains to be seen now is whether these measures will be enough to prevent a more serious economic slowdown. Last week, the Bank of Japan loosened its yield curve control in a move that shocked markets. In today's episode, portfolio managers Chris McKaney, Vishal Bhatia, and your host, Mackenzie Box, explore the latest developments and the potential implications of this shift. They also discuss China's slowing economy, Fitch's U.S. credit rating downgrade, and agricultural commodities. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit BMOETFs.com. Hello, and welcome back to our BMO ETFs Weekly Insights podcast with our team of experts. Thank you to everyone for continuing to tune in and to provide your comments and questions each and every week. I'm today's host, Mackenzie Box, and product at BMO Global Asset Management. Today, I'm joined with Chris McKinney and Vishal Badia, who are both portfolio managers on our ETF desk. A special thank you to both Chris and Vish for joining me today. Good morning. All right. Well, let's dive in. Chris, we'll start with you first. We've recently seen the Bank of Japan adjust their target rate limit on the 10-year government bond. What was the market's reaction to this? And what are some of the longer-term implications for investors? Yeah, certainly we saw a bit of a surprise out of the Bank of Japan last week. And you know, maybe a little bit of background for investors, first of all. Many investors here in North America are familiar with uh, zero interest rate policies where short-term interest rates are kept at zero or very low levels, as well as quantitative easing, which we've seen in the last couple of years where a central bank will go out and and purchase government debt in the market. Uh, Typically, this is shorter-term levels of debt, and what that does is essentially keeps the yield on those uh, instruments down at a very low level as well, in addition to that overnight rate that the central bank controls. Japan over the last several years has been taking that even one step further, uh, adopting what they call yield curve control, whereby that quantitative easing aspect going out into the market and buying government debt is extended out to farther maturities out to 10 years. And so essentially what the Bank of Japan has been doing is keeping their short-term policy interest rate actually at negative levels, negative 10 basis points, And they've had a target of 0% on that 10-year bond for quite some time. Now, we did see last year uh, they had sort of a target of uh, 0% with an upper limit of of 25 basis points. They did double that to 50 basis points last year. And that's generally where the 10-year has been trading somewhere in and around that sort of 40 to 50 basis point range. Now, last week, what the Bank of Japan announced was that it would keep the target at 0% for these 10-year bonds, but that it would raise the ceiling from that 50 basis point level, that 0.5%, all the way up to 1% or 100 basis points. So an effective doubling of the range of yields that they were willing to accept. And so the market reaction to that was for yields to move up very quickly over 60 basis points. So not all the way up to that 1% level, but very quickly up to 60 basis points couple of days after that, earlier this week, we actually saw the Bank of Japan almost reverse course. Um, They actually went out and said they were going to buy bonds at current market prices, again, around that 60 basis point level. They'd be buying an equivalent of about $2 billion worth of bonds. And so in essence, 
not allowing the yields to move up to that 1% ceiling that they had just announced. And so I think the market reaction to that or the market reading through the tea leaf, so to speak, is that the bank ultimately wants to uh, move away from yield curve control, although that's, that's certainly a more longer term outcome of this. But they don't want to do it um, you know, very quickly. They don't want yields to spike up to this 1% level overnight, so to speak. And so I think how investors are interpreting this is that they will allow those 10-year yields to maybe drift up or grind slowly higher over time, but that they'll want to do this in a controlled fashion so as not to cause significant market disruptions. Now, you know, what's the implication of this for investors, particularly North American investors here? There's a couple of different outcomes. Obviously, we think Japanese debt will ultimately trend higher in terms of the the level of yields that they'll be offering. But this could also have a knock-on effect into other uh, parts of the global fixed income markets, specifically um, with U.S. treasuries and U.S. uh, fixed income yields. Japan investors really the largest purchaser of global uh, fixed income securities. And so if Japanese yields start to become more attractive to Japanese investors, that could cause them to keep a little bit more of those investment dollars at home and therefore have less demand globally for U.S. treasuries in particular, and perhaps euro denominated as well. And so, you know, over the long, medium to longer term, you could see U.S. yields uh, move up on this as well. And of course, there's an effect on the currency also. Um, you know, we would expect, again, if Japanese investors are keeping most of their money at home or shifting some of those investments back towards uh, yen-denominated securities, that this will strengthen uh, the Japanese yen given a higher demand for that and lower demand for, again, U.S. dollars or, or other currencies that investors might have previously been trading in. Interestingly, we haven't seen that immediate reaction in the currency markets. If anything, the yen has weakened, all else being equal. Uh, it's only been a few days here. But again, over the longer term, you would expect potentially that currency to rise over time. Now, for equity-oriented investors looking at Japan, of course, BMO offers the uh, BMO Japan Index ETF, ticker ZJPN, and that is unhedged exposure that would have exposure to that yen. Or we offer a currency hedge version back to the Canadian dollars, which would be ZJPN.F or slash F, that currency hedged unit. Again, you know, even though potentially over the longer term, we might see yen appreciate in value, again, that would largely be relative to the U.S. dollar, not necessarily to the Canadian dollar. And we do see possibility of continued volatility in this space. And so, you know, we would think investors looking to Japanese equities might prefer a hedge to CAD version over the next you know, little while in order to mitigate some of that volatility, because certainly not apparent exactly what will happen. Um, and obviously the Bank of Japan taking a little bit of uh, clarity out of their uh, path and their plans over the next, you know, call it a couple of years. And so there's a little bit more opaqueness now into what those yields are going to be over the next year or two and, and how quickly they'll allow yields to move up and, and when they will um, continue to get back into the market and intervene in controlling those yields. So I think investors that are bullish on Japanese equities maybe want to just keep that noise out of the equation, maybe tilt towards that currency hedged exposure for their Japanese equities. Great. Thanks, Chris. Not all cash equivalents are created equal, and BMO's Money Market and Ultra Short-Term Bond ETFs offer several high-quality options to part client cash. 
To learn more, visit BMOETFs.com and search for tickers ZMMK, ZST, and ZUS. Fish, why are we seeing China weaken while other economies are currently strengthening? Yeah, that's a good question. Investor aversion to, to China has really intensified this year following what I guess most would consider kind of a weaker than expected uh, post-COVID reopening economic rebound that was uh, you know baked into investor expectations and also disappointment over the absence of a robust policy response from the government. And another factor affecting you know, the weaker uh, growth that we witnessed uh, would be attributable to renewed Sino-US tensions over trade, tech, and geopolitics. So that's always a factor when investing in China. Investors have definitely been concerned that China, which is the world's second largest economy, seems to be continuing to be weakening, you know, while you know, other major economies appear to be strengthening. Case in point, uh, recent data point after flirting with just, uh, just above the 50 mark uh, recently, uh, about two months or so. The Kaijin manufacturing PMI fell 1.3 points to 49.2 in July, and that represents the lowest reading since the start of the year. So this prompted another announcement of more government support forthcoming. Now, the National Development and Reform Commission declared that it will increase credit to the private sector, and as well, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology said it would boost support for smaller firms in key supply chains. You know, China's government is on watch, so to speak. These announcements that I just mentioned, they follow the recent Chinese Politburo meeting on the economy, which took place on July 24th. It was a meeting of the political bureau of the Communist Party Central Committee. It's the highest decision-making body of the Communist Party of China. They've been under pressure to respond to the poor reception by global investors of weaker than expected growth. And essentially, the meeting, they featured a you know, discussion of the current economic situation in China and, and the policies that the government will need to implement to address the challenges facing the economy. And, you know, they addressed and touched on a, a wide range of topics. Uh, but some of the key takeaways, they touched on employment, uh, where the Politburo reiterated that employment is the foundation of sto social stability and that it's a top priority for the government. Uh, they also called for more effective measures to create jobs, particularly for young people. On the, on the topic of fiscal policy, the Politburo said that the government will increase spending on infrastructure and social welfare with the aim of stimulating economic growth and boosting employment. Touching on monetary policy, the key takeaway was that the Politburo said that the central bank will maintain a prudent monetary policy, but that it will also use various tools to support the economy. So, you know, we read that as suggesting that the central bank may be willing to cut interest rates or provide other forms of monetary stimulus if and when needed. The Politburo said the government will keep the yuan basically stable at a reasonable and balanced level. And so that would suggest that the government is committed to preventing the yuan from depreciating too much, which could hurt Chinese exports and therefore impact growth. On the topic of capital markets, they suggested that the government will promote a healthy development of capital markets. This is clearly to address the perception uh, that perhaps the Chinese capital markets are not as attractive as they should be to global investors with various, um, let's say, it's a somewhat opaque in some regards and maybe doesn't adhere to U.S. accounting standards uh, in many cases. So I think they're acknowledging that tacitly. And on the topic of uh, financial risks, the Politburo said the government will take effective measures to defuse financial risks. So that, that suggests that they are concerned about the rising level of debt in the Chinese economy. 
And lastly, uh, they also suggested that the government will create a favorable environment for businesses to operate and that it's going to take steps to boost consumer confidence aimed at encouraging you know, businesses to invest and consumers to spend. Really, overall, wrapping that meeting up, it, it signaled that the Chinese government is taking steps to address the, the economic challenges facing the country and is maintaining an easing bias. So all that remains to be seen now is whether these measures will be enough to prevent a more serious economic slowdown, assuming that they follow through on you know, what they were asserting in the meeting. I would suggest that despite you know, weaker growth than what investors have historically been accustomed to for China, you know, i.e. You know, 8 9% annual growth rates, uh, whereas where it is now in the mid five to six range and, you know, continued structural concerns, we feel that, you know, China should offer a relatively attractive tactical opportunity for long-term equity investors, given that it's underpinned by a likely improvement uh, in growth forthcoming, the solid earnings trends, and then low valuations, along with, you know, pro-growth policy or regulatory backdrop, as reiterated by the Politburo meeting, assuming they follow through on their pledges. So we offer a number of uh, ways to get exposure for investors uh, to to China in our ETFs, uh, including in the BMO MSCI China ESG Leaders Index ETF with ticker ZCH, the BMO MSCI Emerging Markets Index ETF, ticker ZEM, BMO MSCI All Country World High Quality Index ETF, ZGQ, and lastly, the BMO Low Volatility Emerging Markets Equity ETF with ticker ZLE. Great. Thanks, Vish. Some good options there for investors looking for that kind of exposure. Chris, we'll pass it back to you. Something that's uh, been very topical and we've seen a lot in the news on Fitch Ratings has announced a downgrade of U.S. government debt from AAA to AA+. Given U.S. debt is seen globally as a safe haven for investors, should there be any concern? Do investors need to build their portfolios differently because of this? Thanks, Mackenzie. Yeah, and certainly the news of the day here is the Fitch uh, U.S. downgrade. Um, you know, a couple of months ago, uh, Fitch Ratings announced that they were going to review the credit rating they've given to uh, U.S. Treasuries. That was at the time when policymakers were uh, negotiating around the U.S. debt ceiling and, and coming very close to the deadline there in terms of being able to raise that debt ceiling. And so a couple of months later, here we are with Fitch Ratings coming out with this with downgrade. Again, AAA being the highest rated security uh, and moving down one notch to AA+. So really just one notch down, but uh, losing its status as sort of that highest level of credit rating, at least according to Fitch. Part of the announcement when uh, when they came out with this uh, credit rating change was that the country's finances are, are likely to deteriorate over the next three years, given there's been tax cuts as well as new spending initiatives and therefore debt to GDP levels really moving up to a very high level. Kind of interesting in terms of the timing of this announcement, you know, no real specific uh, catalyst for this uh, right now, but um, you know, that's, that's, that's what we have. Uh, when it was first announced, uh, this was pre-market uh, in terms of North American markets, but uh, trading in London had very little uh, reaction to that. And so I think that's the initial indication that investors are not going to change their view that U.S. debt is that global safe haven. If that was a material change in investors' views, you would have seen an immediate reaction. Now, I would say once North American markets did open, we have seen a move up in yields, particularly in the longer term end. 
anywhere from five years out, we're seeing uh, a rise of five to 10 basis points um, if you're going all the way further out into the curve into the 30 year. So there is a, a decent move in yields up here. Now it's hard to know for sure if this is all driven by this uh, credit downgrade. As I mentioned, the initial reaction from markets was was very muted. So you know there could be other drivers here, but nice, uh, a decent move up uh, in terms of the yields that we're seeing here should be noted as well that you know we saw a similar uh, scenario play out back in 2011 when S&P um, ratings downgraded U.S. debt and they were the first one to do so again back in 2011 uh, around similar concerns. It was around the U.S. debt ceiling negotiations at that time um, and S&P knocked uh, the U.S. rating down from AAA to AA plus as well. Now, ironically, the uh, market's reaction from that was a sell-off in equities and risk-oriented assets. But that actually caused a rally uh, in treasuries themselves um, as investors sought out that sort of safe haven um, and away from risky assets. So interesting that a U.S. downgrade causes a little bit of panic in risk markets um, and actually leads investors to buy more uh, U.S. treasuries. Fast forward to today, again, we are seeing a, a little bit of a risk off tone as well in equity markets uh, with equity markets selling off, but we're not seeing that same sort of buying, you know, at least on the short end yields have been holding in. Uh, but again, on the longer end, we do see a little bit of an increase uh, in uh, in U.S. yield. So I, I don't think, um, again, overall investors are going to change their view that U.S. debt um, is a safe haven, but this could cause a little bit more volatility in interest rates. And, you know, going back to our comments on the Bank of Japan as well, there could be some knock-on effects to, to U.S. interest rates there as well. So certainly a couple of different things lining up here that could see, at least in the longer term, um, U.S. interest rates having a, a bit more of a floor than they used to in the past. Um, and, and, you know, along with that inflation discussion that we've been having over the last couple of years, possibility that longer term rates are going to be drifting higher um, than what we've seen over the last call it 10 plus years or so. Um, so, you know, a few different ways for investors to play that, you know, here at BMO, we offer a, a few different U.S. Treasury ETFs depending which part of the curve you want to isolate. Uh, we have the BMO short-term U.S. Treasury Bond Index ETF, ticker would be ZTS uh, for short. Then we also have a midterm and then a long-term as well. And so depending where you want to play on the curve, where you want that exposure and where you see the best value from these U.S. yields, um, you know, we have a few different options there for you. Obviously, the longer you go out in terms of duration exposure, the more volatility you can potentially expect from your portfolio with any given move uh, in interest rates that we've seen. So for investors wanting to, you know, maybe keep away from a lot of that volatility, maybe stick to that ZTS type of exposure. If you're happy to take on a little bit of U.S corporate exposure as well and, and keep it ultra short we have the zus.u that only trades in us dollars and that is the bmo ultra short term us bond uh, etf so a couple different scenarios there for investors and again depending on how this starts to play out we could see um, a little bit higher interest rates over the long term coming out of the us thanks chris Would you like to hear more from BMO Global Asset Management's team of investment experts? Check out the BMO Market Insights podcast. These timely episodes deliver the latest news and commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing with a focus on exchange-traded funds. Available now on your favorite podcast platform. 
And last but not least, Vish, something else we've seen in the news quite a bit is uh, globally the heat waves and record temperatures um, kind of across the globe here. Now, this could have an impact on crops and other agricultural uh, necessities in general. The full impact of this, though, may not yet be built into current inflation numbers. Now, how should investors think about this? Or are there any opportunities here that they should be mindful of? That's right. You know, the recent heat waves and record temperatures and extreme weather events that we've you know, witnessed around the world, it's a cause for concern for many people, and that includes investors. And certainly it's a wreak havoc on agricultural output. So we've seen you know, high temperatures damage farms across the world from China to the U.S. and the emerging El Nino weather pattern, which raises the temperature of surface water and increases drought risk. That also remains a threat to global food supply. So it's quite possible that the effects of this hot weather or extreme weather weather events, the seemingly increased frequency of these extreme weather events will pressure food production in the coming years, and that may contribute to higher food prices and inflation. And beyond just the, the climate uh, risk, I would add that another factor affecting agricultural commodities is political risk. We've seen that you know, in the last few months, as Russia weaponized food in the next stage of its war with uh, Ukraine, you know, and that, that also sent agricultural commodity prices surging, given that uh, Ukraine is a large producer and exporter of wheat, vegetable oil, and soybeans to the world, and they export these commodities through two major ports or routes, Odessa and Danube. And both of these ports have been under heavy attack by Russian forces, which has disrupted supplies of these key, you know, agricultural ingre- uh, inputs to the globe. So, you know, based on that alone, we've seen wheat futures rise by about 16% in the last month or so as a result. And that may potentially signal higher food inflation ahead as well. Due to fortunate weather at the end of last year and and the early part of this year, especially in Brazil, we saw record harvests of a number of key uh, inputs like soy, corn, and wheat. And that kind of kept food prices in check. But it's uncertain that farmers can keep the same level of output uh, going going forward given this this frequency of extreme weather events and and trend towards higher temperatures so there's a number of ways that investors can you know think about opportunities uh, in this space uh, in order to potentially hedge against you know these risks and or uh, profit from the growth uh, associated with companies in this space and one way is to invest in companies that are developing you know drought resistant crops or other agricultural technologies that could potentially increase crop yield these companies could be well positioned to benefit from the increasing demand for these products as climate change continues to contribute to more extreme weather events and another way you know investors could uh, look at uh, this space in terms of investment opportunities is to look at companies that are involved in the production or distribution side of agricultural products. These companies could benefit from higher food prices, uh, given that they should be able to pass on the higher costs to consumers. Of course, there are you know, a number of risks associated with investing in this space. And one, of course, is that the demand for agricultural products could you know, decline a bit if uh, the global economy slows down. Another risk, it's kind of a double-edged sword, is that new technologies could emerge that make it easier to produce food in a sustainable way. So that's a great, you know, a noble and a worthwhile outcome, definitely, and one which could lead to food, lower food prices for food. So good for, you know, people who need to eat and consumers, but perhaps not the best scenario for investment returns in a broad basket of agriculture-related uh, securities. The recent heat waves and record temperatures, it's a reminder of the risks that climate change and even political risk pose to the global economy as it pertains to crops and agricultural inputs. 
and as it flows through to the rest of the economy. But you know, if you're willing to take on some of these uh, risks in order to hedge against the inflationary impact of higher food prices and agricultural products, there's a way to do that. We we recognize the need to offer a, a strategy which could potentially aid in hedging against these risks and uh, offering a way to potentially benefit from the long-term capital appreciation expected for companies in this space. And so accordingly, earlier this year, in January, we launched the BMO Global Agriculture ETF uh, with the ticker ZEAT. Uh, and what it does is to you know, invest in equities of global agriculture-related companies that are involved in or benefit from agricultural production, chemicals, farm machinery, distribution, packaging. And the fund, furthermore, we, we incorporate a quality screen in the selection of the companies uh, held. And given that historically agricultural equities, given their tight linkage with commodity park, commodity markets, they've provided significant diversification benefits to portfolios due to their low correlations to broad equity and fixed income markets. Markets. So I think you know incorporating or considering incorporating uh, a strategy that invests in this space, it could be beneficial from from that perspective, while also offering the potential for hedging against food price inflation. Uh, resulting from this increased frequency of extreme weather events and, and rising global temperatures. Great. Thanks, Vish. Those are all the questions that we have for this week. So I just want to thank everyone for listening in and a special thank you to both Chris and Vish for providing some great insights. With that, I just want to thank everyone again and wish you all a great day and we'll see you next week. Thank you to Mackenzie Box, Chris McKaney and Vishal Bhatia for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about the BMO Japan Index ETF, ticker ZJPN, which provides exposure to large and mid-cap Japanese equities. Our experts also discussed how extreme weather events can push food costs higher. The BMO Global Agriculture ETF, ticker ZEAT, can serve as a food inflation hedge as it provides exposure to companies that are directly involved in the food production and distribution process. For more information about the other ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the ETF Center at BMOETFs.com. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Commissions, management fees, and expenses, if any, all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus before investing. Exchange-traded funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. BMO Global Asset Management is a brand name under which BMO Asset Management Inc. and BMO Investments Inc. operate.